Before the show, we just wanted to thank you for listening. And if you like what you hear, you can check out more content at mamaronicpublicradio.com. Thanks. There's a philosopher named Donna Haraway who, in her work, uses the image of a cyborg to talk about humanity. By doing that, she divorces us from any unified human nature. What's quote-unquote human isn't constant across times, but instead dynamic, and, like a cyborg, incorporates the objects of the times. From the spear to written language to the internet, objects outside our bodies and brains have defined how we operate in and experience life. One of our stories today about a wristwatch, the other about receipts, paper receipts. It's funny, but both of these objects feel antiquated now, but some still incorporate them into our quote-unquote cyborg selves. Our theme for today, people and the objects that define them. I'm COVID, here's Donia, stay with us. The watch an analog ritual that sets the rhythm of our day. The receipt, an object that documents what we do, what we buy, and serves as a reminder of our past habits. Back to the wristwatch again. One other thing about them, how we continue to give them is gifts for large occasions. And still, today, the wristwatch is a common gift given for engagements, weddings, anniversaries, And these are really expensive, all for a routine, a ritual we're unsure of. Think about it for a second. The clocks on the wall in your office or in a classroom, do we look at them anymore? Or does the computer do all the work? Well, for piece number one, Stevie Georgiakakis talks about how watches have represented her familial and personal ties. And in that helped create her sense of identity. That watch she talks about It's the center of her relationship with her dad. When I was around seven years old, my dad showed me his watch collection and pointed to each one, telling me what was going on in his life when he purchased it and what he thought of every time he looked at it. I remember being baffled by the fact that a singular object could bring back so many memories. They all looked the same to me, with their intimidatingly large faces and their metal bracelets. As a kid, I mostly spent time with my dad, my uncles, and my guy cousins. They all used to love watches. They still do. I mean, we have watch time magazines laying around on the counter. Kits to help readjust the length of the bands, and YouTube videos constantly displaying the inner working mechanisms of each different brand. You name it, we have it. Not one family dinner goes by that a watch isn't mentioned. The women in my family, they would just call it a guy thing in their dismissive tone. Collecting watches to them seemed to be an exclusively male hobby. They were always more interested in jewelry. Back in 1541, however, jewelry wasn't an option in Geneva, Switzerland. The reformist and religious leader of what would come to be known as Calvinism, John Calvin, banned the wearing of all ornamental objects because 
He viewed it as a form of idolatry, which went against his beliefs. This led to a restriction of frivolity and individuality, erasing any sense of identity that people expressed through their possessions. This forced jewelers and goldsmiths to turn to a new industry to make a profit. Watches. By 1601, the Swiss had become so notable for their watchmaking skills that the Watchmakers Guild of Geneva was established, the first of its kind at the time. After the industry skyrocketed, many watchmakers, in an attempt to eliminate competition and open up new markets, left Geneva to open shop in the Jura Mountains, which later expanded to many more locations around the world. By 1790, more than 60,000 watches were being exported from Geneva. This was just the beginning, as improvements to the original watch were made rapidly. In 1770, Abraham Perillet invented the first perpetual watch. 1816, Louis Monet made the first chronograph. 1842, Adrien Philippe created the pendant winding watch. There's a specific way by which one admires a watch, holding it up to the light, tilting it at all different angles and directions. There is a sense of elegance with which the hands tick away. Some are afraid to break or drop it, while others, like myself, aren't quite so afraid, but still feel a sense of respect for these incredible mechanisms. There is cultural significance to each and every one. The two most notable types of movements, or the inner workings of each watch, are the Swiss and the Japanese. While Swiss movements are more aesthetically designed, Japanese movements are more precise and accurate. Decoration, the way the metals cut, and the aesthetic detail of the manufacturing and design process are taken into account with more of a priority when developing Swiss movements. This flair is valued by many watchmakers. Japanese movements are manufactured by an automatic robotics line instead of the human eye. This leaves less room for error and also leads to a more raw-looking mechanism than that of the Swiss. But both have their advantages and disadvantages for watch enthusiasts. I received my first two watches when I was nine years old. It was 2015, and we were in the airport, heading back from our family trip to Greece. I have amazing memories from those couple of weeks, attending a beautiful wedding, playing soccer in the backyard, beating my cousins at chess in the living room. And yet, they were all tainted with a feeling of dread. As an only child, I was very dependent on and attached to my parents. My dad started working from home, when I was born, in order to take care of me and raise me. And because of this, we were always very close. I had never spent more than a couple of days away from him. And yet, halfway through our trip, part of my family, including myself, stayed at a resort for a few days away from my father. I didn't know how to cope with this new fear of separation. I was nine. It's a traumatizing experience, learning to be away from someone you've spent your whole life right next to. I had not yet become acquainted with independence. 
as a way to help me calm down after what I would come to learn was not a very arduous ordeal. My dad decided to buy me my first two watches. Watches had always given him comfort during the hardest times of his life, and this was his attempt at providing me with the same outlet. From that point on, whenever I looked at them, I knew that no matter what happened, I always had a piece of my family with me. The next year, summer of 2016, we went on another family vacation to Aruba. I don't remember much, but out of all the images we took during that week and a half, there's only one photo in my camera roll that I remember taking vividly. It's a selfie of me smiling into the camera, arm extended horizontally across my face, showing off that orange watch on my wrist. But I wasn't showing it off to anyone in particular. It was almost as though I was saying into the camera and to my future self, Remember how happy you are in this moment. We were going out to dinner that night. I had been the first one to get ready, as everyone else was still picking out their outfits. I had chosen a pink and blue dress, had pulled my hair back into a ponytail, and had strapped on that watch. As I got older, this became a recurring pattern. Bridesmaid at my cousin's wedding? I wore a watch. Family baptism? I wore a watch. Junior prom? I wore a watch. To this day, many of my family members complain about my lack of conceptualizing whether or not my accessories match my outfit. But frankly, it's not so much a lack of ability to do so. It's a disregard for doing so. I personally don't care what matches, what's appropriate, what's socially acceptable. Even when I change my appearance to match an occasion, there's still always going to be a part of my true self that remains right there on my wrist. Whenever I feel uncomfortable or out of place, I just take one look at that bulky, powerful watch face. It gives me a sense of confidence and empowerment. It reminds me of my childhood, where I come from, the people that love me, and the story of how I was able to gain independence and conviction in my life. It is said that watches show purpose, character, and uniqueness, that they radiate conscientiousness, individuality, and distinctiveness. I can only hope that some of that has rubbed off on me. I finally understand how one object can hold a thousand memories. Now, at the age of 17, I have a somewhat decent collection of watches that acts as a time machine. When I look at the orange banded one, I think of Greece and vacation and working through my separation anxiety. When I look at the black banded one, I think of my AP tests in junior year, painstakingly checking it to make sure I was pacing myself correctly. When I look at the yellow-rimmed one, I think of my cousin, same age as me, who has a matching one but in a different color. Even though we live miles away from each other, that one watch 
has the ability to connect us over any distance. Life is made up of memories, and objects help us capture those memories in their rawest form. So perhaps possessions do speak to our identities, but not in the way that many of us first think. They don't necessarily reveal who we are, but they can tell the story of how we got there. After all, as referenced by many cheesy quotes, it's the journey that builds our character. Possessions are the mementos we collect along the way, much like photographs taken on the spur of the moment. I give the practice of wearing a watch five stars. Stevie Georgiakakis, graduating senior, 2023. In the days since Stevie's piece was produced, Stevie got as a gift, you guessed it, an Apple Watch. And she insists it's an analog. From valuable to disposable, the objects that define us can take many forms. We can turn intricate timekeeping mechanisms and throwaway records alike into physical manifestations of our emotional world. Even in a culture of mass consumption of cheap goods, of millions upon millions of forgotten purchases, your lottery ticket, your Poland Spring, your Takis, your Trident, your deli sandwich, and the receipts that go with all of those, at least someone holds them dear. Let's hear more about this from our producer, Toli Velikov. It's a familiar question. Most of us probably don't even think about it, and our responses to it have become almost automatic. You go to the store, you either toss in or neatly arrange your groceries, act like adding that extra bag of chips makes you some sort of risky adventure, and then stand in the open space, calculating what register will ring you up the fastest. The line of beeps that ensues as each item is scanned is promptly followed by a that'll be 2749, and then the infamous question. Do you want a receipt? The default answer seems to be no, for various reasons. The environmentally conscious might spare themselves a receipt, but lately I've ascribed myself to the group of people that feel they just don't need a receipt. I feel that I know what I bought, when I bought it, and I paid close attention to when they scanned all my items. I feel I just don't need this extra sheet of paper to unload when I put away my groceries, considering I intend to throw it away. Some also use receipts because they like to have physical documentation of their financial transactions. This makes sense, especially to those that seek to be more conscious with their spending. In some countries, such as Germany, businesses are even required to provide a receipt for each transaction. Last week, I discovered that I had amassed a great amount of receipts in my jacket. They were all crumpled up into a heaping ball in the pocket, and most were illegible in the state they were in, mostly due to the past week's rain, which left them in a seemingly irredeemable wet condition. That week, the cold, heavy downpour struck the pavement and echoed against the walls of the school. As I prepared to leave for home, I realized I had no umbrella, raincoat, or anything to shield myself from the storm. By the time I got home, my black puffer jacket was drenched. I dripped on the hardwoods that I took it off to hang up to dry. I wanted to take the things out that might have been in it, considering that they might very well be soaked too. So I sifted through one pocket, 
Yamakis, this weird little hand lotion bottle I have for the dry patch on my thumb, and my wallet. But all I find in the other pocket are receipts. A lot of them. Soaked. Subconsciously, I felt the need to leave them out to dry. Maybe there was something important on them. I wanted to look them over, but I couldn't make anything out in their wet state. Neatly arranged in rows, the pieces of paper were free of any rain now, and surveying them in this orderly perspective, I noticed they were all from different stores. One was from H Mart, another from the Met, a third from Muji, and a fourth or C from my grandma. It was an odd moment of recollection. I'd forgotten I did the things the receipts told me I did. They were a reflection of the quintessential human experience of exchange. Exchange of objects, emotion, and exchange of experiences. Like old relics or artifacts from a time before, I felt like I was unearthing tangible pieces of the past. I found that they bore connections to people and experiences that hold a degree of significance to me. At first glance, these ordinary, vaguely specific sheets of paper are just scraps, and at face value, I guess that's what they are, but they came to mean more to me than that. December 6th, 2023, H-Mart. Shin spicy ramen noodles, shiitake mushrooms, egg noodles, mango jellies. H-Mart is a Korean supermarket chain here in America that features a variety of Asian food beyond your imagination. Some H-Marts also have a seafood sector with tanks of fresh fish, as well as giant king crabs, which my brother likes to ogle at. My family goes to H-Mart every month in an effort to restock on foods we love that are only available there. On December 6th, I was recovering from a terrible cold that was going around, the kind of cold that leaves your lungs shot and your body aching. In my fatigued state, I slept through most of the day, and this particular day, the sun burst through my blinds as my mom pulled back the curtain, encouraging me to move around. I proposed we go to H-Mart, excited by the prospect of something different from the usual grocery store experience. I was also out of spicy shin noodles and thought that knowing I had a pack in the cupboard would make me feel better. We got to H-Mart in Hartsdale, where there are many restaurants in the store serving Japanese, Korean, and Chinese food. I got a bowl of beef udon that had a characteristic comforting warmth to it. My mom had also bought egg noodles, mushrooms, and other ingredients for stir-fry noodles, which left me looking forward to that night. On the way out, I noticed a plastic teddy bear bearing mango jellies. My cousin had given me a few a while back, and I recall they fill you with a raw and unfiltered happiness as you slurp out the mango. That morning, I groggily yelled at my family for being too loud. Their laughter pounded in my head, which felt like it was about to blow. I sickly and childishly ranted to them about how it was 10 a.m. and the TV volume couldn't be so high and they mustn't talk so loud and they shouldn't be walking up and down the hall so much. But in the afternoon, I looked back on the day and saw not the dread of being sick recognized that despite lashing out in frustration over the circumstances, my family lovingly did their best to make me feel better. Now, I still hold this receipt close to me. 
when I find myself cold and unempathetic as I was that day, this receipt reminds me to take a moment and process how I feel instead of being insular and projecting it on others. It keeps me grounded when I feel like I'm drifting away. January 28th, 2023, The Met. Two Met tickets. There's not much to do in the cold months of winter, especially with friends. Most of what you do is encompassed by hanging out at each other's houses or going out to eat in some cases. At that point, the city seems like a good option to diversify these experiences. That day, my girlfriend and I went to the Met. We spent four hours in the museum, ogling over tiny figurines and marveling at grandiose sculptures. We quietly laughed in the winding corridors as we imitated the portraits, striking funny faces and poses. The ride back to Larchmont gave way to pure, unadulterated conversations and earnest moments of laughter in the serenity of the almost empty train car. January 28th, 2023, Muji. One notebook for 99 cents, six Muji ballpoint pens for $1.50 each. Muji is a global Japanese retail company that I like for its stationery. The particular location we went to was across from the New York Public Library, the one with the big lines of the steps, conveniently close to Grand Central Terminal. I bought myself and her a few pens and myself a notebook. I would later write through all the pages in this notebook, paint the cover, and give it to her for Valentine's Day. I became far closer to someone that day, and these receipts tell the story of that. September 13th, 2021, Zakuski. This one's older, and in a way the most special. All my family is in Bulgaria, and though I go every summer to visit them, my grandma from my mom's side visits in the winter so we can spend more time with her. My grandma often likes to save small items she finds significance in and wants to cherish. One day, when I came home from school, she was sitting at the dining table, sifting through the various small papers sitting in her wallet. She motioned for me to come to the table so she could show me one. It was a receipt for two banichke, or big Bulgarian breakfast filo dough pastries filled with feta. When my grandpa was still around, when I was with him over the summer, we'd go fishing together early in the morning. On the way back, we would stop at the store to get everyone Bainichke for breakfast. Everyone was still sleeping by the time we would be back, but our arrival awoke surprise and excitement for the goods we brought. The store is still there, and I plan to get Bainichke there next summer. Until then, this receipt tethers me to it and to the memories I associated with it. Now, I keep a receipt journal. Each page is lined with an intricate collage of receipts from different stores, different moments, with different people. The record feels more solidified now. It's more than a few scraps of paper shoved into a drawer or a pocket that you might glance at and smile for a moment. It's tangible, not loose pages with no resemblance together. I can flip through them, and like reading a book, I'm transported to a familiar moment in time. Having this kind of source of recollection is more important now than ever. We wake up each morning to a world that prioritizes moving fast 
and experiencing life in a blur of sights and sounds. Most of what we encounter we don't pay attention to, and so we regretfully fail to recognize the value in the moments we live through. Receipts give these moments a lifeline. They keep the memory alive long enough for us to appreciate it. That was Toli Velikov. One side note, when Toli went shopping with his girlfriend in the story, she ended up throwing out all of her receipts. Toli was beside himself. Today's episode was written and narrated by Stevie Georgiakakis and Toli Velikov, and produced by Stevie Georgiakakis, Roel Jimenez, Doña Dami, and Covid Odoir. Music given to us by Blue Dot Sessions. A big thank you to the Mamaroneck Schools Foundation for their support, and to our mentor, Mr. Evan Madden who continues to think he is Ira Glass. If you like what you hear, stay tuned for episode three. And thank you for listening.